The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello. She was virtually unknown in her lifetime, writing poetry mostly for herself. Four years after her death, the wider publication and the astonished reappraisals began. Her name was Emily Dickinson, and we look at one of her most famous poems today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here, etc. I almost called this episode, this episode is not about Christina Rossetti because of what I found myself unable to do this week. I put together these, ah, oh, this is my problem, isn't it? I put together these two-part, three-part, four-part episodes, and then I just become stymied by, I don't know, some kind of intense boredom or self-loathing, or I don't know what it is, existential crisis. It's frankly so bizarre, and it's probably why we don't have Jack Wilson, NPR hero, or Jack Wilson, king of the BBC, right? I'm not a broadcaster. I can't work on command or demand. Podcasting, podcasting, I have no master, I have no boss, I have no bottom line, and no bottom either. It seems if there's no bottom to how low you can fall, you can't really draw a line down there, can you? <laughs> you, just, you just have a smear <laughs> on your page, maybe. Darkness begetting more darkness. An infinite smudge. Well, that's me in a nutshell. Harmless drudge plummeting toward the infinite smudge. Put that on my tombstone. Guess what Emily Dickinson put on her tombstone? She wrote her own epitaph, called back. It says, Emily Dickinson, born December 10, 1830, called back. May 15th, 1886, called back. Call, called back to, to heaven, one supposes. 55 years after the departure from heaven, dear Emily was called back. Someone did the calling. Was it angels, friends up there in heaven, or was it God himself saying, you've had your stint down there, I'd like you back up here with me. I need you. Does God say that when he calls us back? You're called back because you're needed here. Or does he just say, it's time? My guess is it's the latter. And this might seem fanciful to you, these hypotheticals, but we're operating on hunches and impulses and ideas and guesses because death is our topic today. Emily Dickinson's view of it, as expressed in one of her most famous poems, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. What a fantastic opening line, by the way. What does stopping for death even mean? Eight syllables in that line. It's iambic tetrameter, but come on, people. Using words like that, iambic tetrameter, that that's, puts it in some pointy-headed academic language, which is useful for translators and professors and students, but let's not be any of those things at the moment. Let's be human beings, merely humans. Poetry fans, maybe, but let's not even go that far. Let's just be human beings, lowly humans, naked and starving and terrified, or maybe a little more gussied up than that. Put your clothes back on and eat a little something and come back. But still be terrified because, by God, why wouldn't you be? Look at the world around you. Terror is appropriate. You're going to die, by the way. FYI, spoiler alert. That's the spoiler alert of all spoiler alerts, isn't it? And humans alone are invested with that knowledge. Called back. 
Isn't it pretty to think so? So let's not waste our time, we terrified humans, sitting in our workman's clothes or maybe a simple homemade dress or maybe pajamas. I have on a jacket and tie, but that's only because I want to look good for you people who never see me. I'm just as as terrified as you are in your workout clothes or your leather coat or your long overcoat, your top hat, (laughs) if you're wearing one. Maybe you're in your beach clothes, summertime swimsuit with a towel over your shoulders. Maybe the towel is over your shoulders because the sun is going down and it's time to move inside. The sun is always setting, right? It's always setting. As soon as you can see it, it's setting. That process has already begun. It fools you because it's ascending in the sky, but it's going in one direction, and that is to set. It's why we are so tied to the sun. We do the exact same thing. Soon as Sorry, babies. As soon as you're born, you're dying. Every single day, you're moving toward that. Now eat and grow and learn things and be good to one another before I call you back. Okay, so... Sorry for those of you waiting for Christina Rossetti. I can't stop thinking about this poem. And frankly, Christina Rossetti was starting to feel like homework to me, although I do have Goblin Market in my sights and her life too. She was pretty amazing, although in terms of being amazing, nobody tops the queen. Emily Dickinson, my goodness, what a mind. Okay, so... We are on the first line. Ignore iambic tetrameter. Just think of the way the words sound. To dum to dum to dum to dum. Because I could not stop for death. Mm, that because tells us not to stop, not to plan for an ending, because as the start of the clause and there will be more. But this line just has four of these little drum beats. The dum da dum da dum da dum. What does that rhythm remind you of? What do you feel? The dum, the dum, the dum, the dum. It's a drum, maybe, beating out time. But what else? Come on, you're ahead of me already. It's a heartbeat, a heart beating. Because we're not called back yet, nor is the speaker. Not at rest, still alive, still doing things, unable to stop for death. Because who has time to stop for that? Who has time to stop for death, capital D, when we are so busy living with that beating heart? I talked to a man the other day who's 90, and he was saying how miraculous it is that he's still alive. He smoked three packs of cigarettes a day for 52 years, and the doctors told him that he has large lungs, which somehow saved him. That, and some kind of lottery-like luck. 52 times... 365 times 60 cigarettes is well over a million cigarettes that he inhaled. Imagine including that kind of drag on your system. How many minutes does one waste just fumbling for the packet and finding an ashtray and swiping matches, turning them from sticks into fire? But there's a, a, a contemplation, too, with that smoking? Maybe not if you're a chain smoker like that, and then you're just living with a cigarette sticking out the corner of your mouth. But let's say you smoke a few less than that. Or maybe once in a while, there was a contemplation, even for him, in the middle of his daily 60. A moment of inhalation, a pause in life. And he said, well, looking back, my life probably should have been a lot shorter. But who knows what kind of life I would have had. The cigarettes helped me think. And I said, what did you think about when you were smoking? What did it help you think? And he said, well, I was thinking about death. (laughs) That man's heart is still beating somewhere within those buried inside those large pillowy lungs, apparently, (laughs) which are probably still black, by the way. Anyway, there's a beating heart in there. It's fainter now. A 90-year-old heart, maybe not quite as strong. The colors are brilliant as he slides below the horizon. His mind is still alert and active, just like the sky lighting up as the sun fades. 
he is in the process of being called back. Somewhere there's a giant phone being lifted and a giant finger starting to tap the buttons. Because I could not stop for death. Oh, Emily, what was it like in your world, in your mind? The next line is, he kindly stopped for me. Again, it's the beating there, right? Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. He kindly stopped for me. This time only three beats, not four, giving us a sense of a pause, right? And you go four and then three. You get a little bit coming to rest. Already we have, what, oh, what we have in just two lines, seven simple little feet. Using foot in the line, in the sense of meter. We have a feeling that the speaker here has some agency. The speaker has chosen whether to stop, maybe, or maybe we just can't. What does that mean? I could not stop for death. Why? Because you're not able or because you did not want to? How much agency did the speaker have? In either case, though, we say, not you, not this time, not now. Death, leave us alone. Leave us alone. I am not stopping for you. And then the second line, death responds, nope, 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 nope. Death will stop for you. You're not stopping. It don't matter. That's how I imagine death talking, by the way. My version of death in my mental picture is kind of like the guys I went to high school with. You're not, st you're not going to stop. It don't matter. What is you, ignorant? With the bottom lip puffy with chew, white ring from the tobacco can, permanently engraved into the back of the, the back pocket of the blue jeans. Carrying death in the bottom lip all the time from age, I don't know, 13 onward. Is that when they started? A couple of them have died, unfortunately. Taken by cancer. Mm. Those are the boys I think of, and now the men who embody death to me. A mean smile playing about their eyes. I don't think that was Emily's death, by the way. Look at her line. He kindly stopped for me. Does that tell us anything about death? Not to my ear. About death with a capital D. Death the person. Not to my ear. To me, it's more about the speaker. Imagine hustling past a taxi cab that's going to take us somewhere. Actually, I have something like this from my own life that I can share. When I snuck into Tibet way back when, and there was a town known for being run by a, a fiendish Chinese man, military man, who actually loved meeting Westerners. He was stuck way out there in an outpost, an outpost to him when you're from China. It wasn't an outpost for the people who live there, who were from there, of course. All this is relative. This man was famous for taking travelers, backpackers, and other visitors, taking them to dinner and so on, being very kind, smiling. So the plan was... The plan was to avoid this guy because then he would hit you with fines or he would he would take your stuff or he would make you delay or he would not allow you to go where you wanted to go. And so the plan was, for those who were in the know about this guy getting ready for him, is that when you were hiding out on the bus or the truck or however you were trying to sneak into this town, you would ask to be let out early before arriving within the town's limits. And then you would just walk along the road into town, find your lodgings without ever going to the bus stop where everyone was let out, the main drag. And that way you would hope that this fiendish man would never find you. So it was very early in the morning. I tell my fellow travelers my plan. I ask to be let out. I get let out about a half a mile or so by myself in the dark. And I start walking along this road into town and I go about, about 10 steps. Seems like 10 steps. Maybe it was more like two minutes. And immediately, 
there appears a man on a bicycle. Because I wasn't the first guy to try this. I mean, it was in the Lonely Planet book. <laughs> Here's something to try. There was probably some schmuck who did it every day. And so they sent out a man to follow me. He was saying, hello, hello, hello. And I was trying to pretend he didn't exist, hoping that maybe he was just some random kid. Something, someone who would get bored eventually. But of course, he worked for this guy, this man. I don't want to mention his name, even though he's probably long gone. But this guy worked for that guy. And this guy escorted me straight to the fiend I was trying to avoid. And once I got there, I had to sit with all the travelers who had been rounded up at the bus stop. The people I was trying to outsmart by getting out early, they were all there too. And they kind of, yeah, they kind of chuckled to see me being brought in the smarty pants with the lonely planet book who was trying to trying to cheat the system did not work because i could not stop for the fiend he kindly stopped for me imagine you hustle past a taxi that holds people inside and they are your kidnappers the driver plans to kidnap you and you say sorry nope i don't need to do this Goodbye, I'm not stopping here. Like my three-year-old going to the dentist for the first time, they called his name and he sprinted out the door onto the sidewalk. He'd been waiting in the waiting room with me for like an hour. All ready to go to the dentist. Yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready, Dad, no problem. We got this. They called his name. <laughs> he jumped up from his chair and said, Actually, I don't need to do this. And he ran out the door and started running down the sidewalk. Headed toward, I don't know, Central Park, Freedom. I chased him down and scooped him up and carried him back inside and put him in the chair. Yes, you do. Sorry, death. No time. Can't stop, won't stop. And death kindly pulls up and swerves into your path and says, get in. For Emily, it's not a dad grabbing a kid on the sidewalk or a bicycle on the outskirts of a Tibetan town or a taxi with a kidnapper inside. It's a carriage with death in it. And something else, too, something or someone, quite surprising, which we will see after we return from this short break. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the poem. We're still in the first stanza. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Hmm. Four heartbeats, three heartbeats, or eight, if you count heartbeats that way. Four pairs, three pairs. Now we get four more and then three more after that. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. Mm, that is interesting, intensely interesting. There's so much going on in this Poem in these 20 words. 20 words is all we have so far. And yet we have a speaker who was too busy for death, either too busy or unable to stop. Death had stopped for the speaker. However, there's a little bit of irony or self-mocking humor, a little bit, oh, he kindly stopped for me. Isn't that nice of death <laughs> to make sure that we're all included, not just those who want him and who are ready for him and who stop for him. He's got a big tent, this guy, Death. 
How generous of him to include us. We're the only ones in this carriage because, of course, the speaker got in. She has no choice. There are no polite refusals. What's the point? And the carriage has no one else except immortality. Immortality. That's here too. Mortality and immortality. Two sides of the same coin. Death is kind of that coin. With mortality comes immortality because immortality is the opposite of mortality and vice versa. And here we think, well, what's after life? Eternity. Life on earth might not be eternal, but heaven is. The afterlife is. Whatever the afterlife is, it's eternal. And death has that power. It flips that switch. As as long as death stays away, we have immortality. When death arrives, we aren't immortal. That's a dream for us lowly humans, except It's also ours in a sense. It's what we get whether we want it or not. Being here means that you will not be here too, forever and ever. That's how time works. Even if you think our existence ends at death, if that snuffs you out, the end of your existence, the fact of it, the fact of your not being here will continue forever. That's the immortal part. 20 words, 14 heartbeats, What can you do in 14 heartbeats, people? Emily Dickinson has created a scene and defined the nature of the cosmos with grace and good humor in 14 14 14 heartbeats. I'm lucky if I could complete a sneeze. So I'm tempted to take another break now just to marvel at what an amazing first stanza that is. A speaker who can't stop, won't stop, death swerving over, aha, can and will, and kindly death. The whole attitude of this poem, the whole mood, yes, dear reader, this is grim, but we don't have to be all mopey about it. This is a poem, not a funeral. This is your life, not your death, or it's your death, not your life. Take your pick. Whichever one is glass half full to you, unless you're a glass half empty person to your core, In which case, I will say, the glass is full of poison. So you will be optimistic here. If your glass half empty, I'm going to fill your glass with poison. I'm making the rules. Or rather, Emily is making them, and I'm enforcing them. A carriage with a stunningly stunningly smart companion. Immortality. A perfect... Rhythm to match the beating of the heart. All this in 20 meager words. 20 humble little words. And suddenly I'm as invested in this journey as I am in a, a Tolstoyan affair or, or the fate of one of Dickens's young strivers. Aren't you? Don't you want to know what's going to happen to this speaker? who climbed into this carriage with death and found that immortality was in there too. Will death make some demands? Will there be some tears, some some reconciliation, some, some fear or terror? Will death bargain, reveal secrets? Will our speaker die at the end of this? We are inside the heartbeat of the universe. This is the place where secrets live. Let's see if we are given any of them. And let's, yes, let's take a break because I need to catch my breath. Sorry, dear listeners. I know we just took one, but this one, that one was for you and this one is for me. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, good news, people. Good news. The good thing about taking that second break early like that is that it is now just you and me and this poem, just you and me in this carriage, and we can start our journey together without fear of interruption until we finish. We will go the rest of the way together as far as it takes. Not a long poem. Don't you feel that way when you get in the car and the door closes or you arrive at the airport or maybe when you make it through security at the airport? Ah, okay, good. Exhale. Exhale. The last stop was 
It's behind us. The next one is not yet here. We are just in process. Nothing to do but this journey until we arrive. Nowhere to be but here. That's how I feel like it is in this carriage with the speaker and death and immortality. There is nowhere to be but here. So what happens? Next stanza. We slowly drove. He knew no haste. And I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. Okay. Death is patient. Of course he is. I'm patient too when I know my argument is unassailable. If I tell a small child it's bedtime and they say, I'm, I'm never going to bed again. I'm going to stay up forever. <laughs> and I, I can be patient at that point. Yes, you could say that all you want. I know you will be asleep probably pretty soon. If you see a child wandering from the path, but you know it's only a matter of time before they'll get stuck where they are, where they're headed, and realize they need to return to the path, then you can just smile and let them have a little wander. What did our speaker do as the carriage slowly takes off? She puts away labor and leisure. As you do when you're on the train or on the plane, your Wi-Fi's off, the phone is in airplane mode. Maybe you could read a little. Maybe you just sit and think and gaze out the window. You're certainly not doing what you would ordinarily do, whether that's being a president or a pole vaulter. Tube. <laughs> I don't know why I chose those. Two common professions, not so much. A doctor or a lawyer, how about that? A worker or someone who hunts or fishes or golfs or hikes or, or bakes or volunteers at the food bank. Put away your concerns and your routine duties and hobbies. Death and his, his kindly offer to take you for this ride have earned something else. Poetically, we're still doing eight and six, eight and six, with dashes to help keep the rhythm on track. Emily, Emily Dickinson's dashes are like train tracks, literally. They steer the wheels, or maybe they're more like uh, guardrails that they put up on curves near highways, or the reins on horses that can pull a little bit, tug in one direction or another. If you're a poet and you ask, which punctuation should I use here? A period, a colon, a, a semicolon, a comma, or nothing at all? If that's your question, and the proper answer is yes, then you insert the dash and you cross yourself and you glance up to the heavens and you say a little prayer of gratitude to St. Emily. The dash. The Dickinson dash. Okay, next stanza. We pass the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. This is our third stanza of 8686. The whole poem is seven stanzas, by the way. We're about halfway, almost. What do we get in here, in these four little lines? As we gaze out the window of our carriage, accompanied by death, our driver, or maybe our host, and that shadowy figure, Immortality, who's here too, a fellow passenger. What do we see gazing out this window? A school, a schoolyard full of children playing at recess, not learning, having fun, expressing joy, exuding humanity with their young energy, a little contained. They are in a school, they are in a ring. Recess is sharply demarcated by time, as any kid who remembers the 15-minute interval, if that's what you had. You didn't get to just play until the game was over or until you were tired. You played until that whistle blew, and then you went sprinting toward the school to line up or else. Those recess ladies were not to be trifled with at my school. My, I think I told you about these people, these women. My aide had teenage boys who had been in Vietnam very recently. And by God, if the rule was two kids on a tire swing and not three, do you think Mrs. Klusmeyer was going to allow that third kid to sneak on just for fun, just for kicks? Just because 
Do you think those rules were there to be flouted? Not with Mrs. Klusmeyer on the watch or Mrs. Pan, whose sons had feet with jungle rot from being in wet boots over there in Vietnam. Do you think do you think Mrs. Klusmeyer and Mrs. Pan were going to let a a kid who only had tennis shoes play in the snow against the rules? Get on the concrete, young man. And when this whistle blows, you get into line, post-haste. But within this rigid structure, within these rules, within these limits, the world is yours. Please do have fun, kiddies. That's important, too. It's what they pay me for. To provide the discipline and the structure so that you can experience joy for 15 minutes. What else does Emily pass in that carriage of hers? Fields of gazing grain. Gazing. So beautiful. Not grazing. Not grain for grazing. Not to be eaten right out here. That's somewhere off in the future. For now, it's just growing and looking. Looking and being seen. An ocean of grain to be seen and perhaps do a little seeing itself. Looking at the sky and the world around us, and of course, the sun, which now is setting. Children, laborers, that's what all that grain is, right? Production, food, labor waiting to happen. And a setting sun. That's that stanza. Children, adults, retired people, the three stages of life. Play, work, slumbering unto death. Retirement rest. 14 heartbeats, people. This is a poetic genius operating at an extremely high level. Our next stanza is the first one, the only one actually in this whole poem of seven stanzas, the only one that doesn't follow the 8686 pattern. Naturally, it comes in the middle or nearly so, just after the middle. And this one has So in other words, we have three that follow the pattern, one that's slightly different, and then two that follow the pattern again. The middle one, the one we're in right now, stanza four, is where we make a turn, a pivot. This one, instead of 8686, is 6886. Remember the last line was, we passed the setting sun. This stanza is, or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill, for only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tool. Okay, so where are we? We've moved from day to night, morning recess, to a nightgown. Tool is like gossamer. Imagine a very thin sort of garment, which is perfect. This is a summer night, right? We saw the fields of grain. We know it's summer. The dews are quivering, there's a chill, and the speaker's gown is gossamer, and the tippet, which is like a shawl or a cape, is made of tulle, which is silky and thin. We say, or rather, he passed us. What does that mean? That's how the stanza begins. Talking about the setting sun, we passed the setting sun, or rather, he passed us. Once again, it's this Einsteinian theory of relativity, right? Position is in the eye of the beholder or the perspective of the speaker. Your position in the cosmos can be either fixed or moving, and so can everything else. As things wheel around, you can either imagine that it's moving or you are. The truth is, you both are. But imagine that you're fixed and everything's moving, or everything else is fixed and you're moving, or something else is fixed and you're moving. We think of the sun as setting, but it's not really moving like that, right? It's not moving through our sky. Our ground is moving. Our planet is spinning. In this case, what Emily is saying is in reverse. We pass the setting sun, but no, the sun isn't something you pass. It disappears from your view. The sun is what moves across the sky because time moves whether you imagine it's moving or not. It moves when you're standing still. The only thing you can do to make it slow down 
is to you can't make anything. Nothing you can do will make it slow down, but you can you can make it seem like it's slowing down. You could do something intensely boring. But even then, it's not going to go backwards. That's the trick, right? You want a job that flies by, so you look at your watch and say, oh man, it seems like I just got here. Now it's time to go already. Or do you want one so crushingly dull that you look at your watch and say, wait, I, f I feel like I've been doing this for an hour and it's only been two minutes. Does that cheat death to be so bored? To hate life? To, or, should I say, to love life so much that you're willing to hate it in order to prolong it? Does that squeeze out more from life to slow down time with boredom and tedium? I've pondered this and have reached no good conclusion. Meanwhile, the sun passes me. I like this speaker in her gown and shawl made of these... Thin, gauzy fabrics. I'm starting to feel like she might be sort of a ghost. Maybe a corpse, if you're macabre. But anyway, someone who's not bundled up against the night air, not sweating under heavy garments, not someone who's sticky from wearing a, a heavy cloth shirt all day in the sun, but someone who is almost herself like the wind in this carriage of hers. Next two stanzas return us to the steady heartbeat. Our stanza of arrhythmia, heart murmuring, is over. We've made the turn. The sun is setting and the poem is setting too. Next stanza. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible. The cornice in the ground. Ah. <sighs> This house, this house, it's not a house I want to see. A house, I want a, I want a little house with a light and warmth. A house that's a swelling of the ground. You can be optimistic here and think, well, maybe it's a dome home. It's mostly buried, or maybe it's some kind of cool cave, or... Maybe it's a fantastic bunker. Maybe you go inside and it does light up and it's like a, a whole shopping mall built into the earth. A cool underground city. But let's throw some realism on this fantasy. I know it's what you wanted to think. I appreciate the optimism, but you know what this is as well as I do. It's a tomb. It's a grave. A swelling of the ground with the roof scarcely visible, a cornice in the ground. It's the house we'll all have, most likely. It's about six inches longer than we are. But we don't need it to be long, because we ain't moving. Time will move. We won't. Our bodies won't, anyway. Did you hear that ain't that snuck in there? It's my high school friend with the mean smile. He's back. I shot it with a gun and stepped on his head. <laughs> that was my high school. Brutal poets, every one of them. Great philosophizers of the school of hard knocks and realism. Spitting tobacco juice in a Hardy's cup. Our second to last stanza, the penultimate stanza in this poem was The Grave Described as a House. The grave. What does any of this mean? We have one stanza to go. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Oh my God. Let's just talk about the last, let's just look at the last lines of the six stanzas for a moment. Or the seven. Look at the words that pop out of those lines. We get four lines per stanza, right? I know you can't see this. Maybe you've looked up the poem. That's not a bad idea. It's easy to find. All fits right in. Fits right on the screen of your phone or your window of your browser. Words like death and stop and fields and ground and roof and day. Plain words, Anglo-Saxon words, rough, short. 
peasant words, earthy words. The finer words, the Latinate words, come in the last lines of some of these stanzas. Immortality, civility, eternity. Words to be etched in marble. Marble of a tomb, perhaps. Marble of a poem. Words with concepts that reach beyond what a farmer might see in a field as he squints against the sun. These are things you contemplate when you are at rest. Three and a half lines of earthiness. And then a ringing reach towards civilization and sophistication. and something that we humans know and appreciate. Like symphonies or great novels or astronomy. Something elevated. Something on a higher plane. Something abstract. Something in rarefied air. Philosophy. Because for all of this bodily weight that we have, the failures of our animal being, the stumblings of being human, we have these gorgeous minds too. It's why we are the closest to God. Sorry, dolphins. You're in second place, you stupid losers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no offense to dolphins. I got a little carried away there. The earth and everything in it, fish and fowl, plants and pianos, it's all just stuff. And we are stuff too, but we also have this ability to think and reason and imagine and appreciate something that goes way beyond hunger and cold and procreation and fear. What do we learn about our speaker, our 19th century genius, who has allowed us to see inside her carriage and inside her mind? We see that she's not from the 19th century, actually. She has died centuries before. That's what she tells us. Breathtaking in this last stanza. The centuries have flown by. That's one hint in that great dilemma I set forth before. Do you want time to crawl or do you want it to fly by? Which would be better? We learn that in the afterlife, anyway, it flies by. Centuries feel shorter than a day. And not just any day. Which day? It's not a day. It's the day, because Emily's not done with us. We hear that there was a very particular day, centuries ago, when the speaker surmised that the horses' heads were toward eternity. Can't stop, won't stop for death. Death stops. You get in the carriage. You look around. Nobody here but me. Death and immortality. You gaze out the window and you travel. That's the moment of death plus the afterlife. And at some moment, you big-brained person, you've kept your beautiful mind, by the way, on this journey, your ability to see and notice and appreciate and formulate things into words. You've kept your affinity for the heartbeat. It's marking time for you. It shapes your thoughts. At some moment, you notice, you surmise that the horse's heads are toward eternity. That's where those gorgeous creatures are going. Clip-clop, clip-clop, they're taking you there. They won't be stopping for food or drink. They're mythic. They're the best transportation imaginable in this context. An electric car wouldn't be this good, or a spaceship, or a magic carpet. Or I don't know, all those things would be good. They would put us in a different century, probably. But this one is a carriage, a beautiful 19th century carriage with these horses and their own animal minds, their heads, giving them just enough purpose, enough they know where they're going to be wonderful in the context of this poem. They'll take us to death. We'll swing by all of life from cradle to grave, morning to night, recess to rest, and everything in between, including all labor and all leisure. And this is how death works, because this is how time works, because this is how the universe works. The constant movement forward and the constant ending, all of us ending, ending from the moment we begin. And what we get is the beauty along the way. Sometimes the beauty of children laughing in beautiful fields of grain, stirring gently in the wind, and sometimes the more complicated beauty of feeling a chill in the summer's night, or walking past a graveyard and thinking about the nature of life 
or the sudden shock and the resigned aftermath of seeing that the horses are on their way. They're pointed in one direction and their purpose is to take us there. We might not want to get in the carriage and go, but we will go, all of us, and time will fly. We'll still be beautiful and ugly too, but mostly beautiful because our ugliness has its own savage beauty. And our beauty is not ugly, so we tend toward beauty, just as life tends toward death. But mortality tends toward the immortal and the carriage doesn't ride towards oblivion, it sails toward eternity. And how do you end a majestic poem like this one? Do you end quietly with a period? Or do you emphasize its greatness and the greatness of its epiphany with an exclamation mark? Or do you perhaps give it a half twist with a question mark? The answer, of course is yes, because you, like Emily Dickinson, are a gorgeous goddamn genius. And when you're writing a poem about eternity, you end your poem with a dash. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I got a little carried away there. My apologies. My thanks to Emily Dickinson for stepping in today when Christina Rossetti was indisposed, or at least I wanted nothing to do with her. Believe me, I tried. My thanks to Christina Rossetti for being patient. My thanks to the dolphins, those lovable losers. Hey, dolphins. The silver medal is nothing to sneeze at. I put you ahead of great apes. And macaque monkeys, after all. Somewhere there is a sad chimpanzee with a tear running down his little face, wearing a bronze medal around his neck. I can't please everyone, people. It's the nature of the beast. The beast being me. The judge who awarded himself the gold. Ha ha. <laughs> Sorry to all you other beasts. I'm going with humans this time around until we get so big-headed we trash the place. Then we'll, that'll knock us down a few pegs. If only we had a few more Emily Dickinsons in our world and a few less everyone else's, we would be in good shape. Look at how lopsided it's been. There have been about 117 billion people who have ever walked the earth. And there has been one Emily Dickinson. It hardly seems fair. No wonder we're so lousy. We only got one? 117 billion others? It's as if lightning only struck one time and we're still sitting here cold and without fire just talking about how great it was when we had that that hot tree <laughs> suddenly got hot. Remember that? There was a bright light and some noise and then there was that hot tree? It was burning in that weird way and we were able to cook our food for once? Wasn't our gruel good that night? Hot oatmeal, so warm and toasty with a little cinnamon and those dried grapes we call raisins, tasting so good in that warm gooiness. But then the hot tree stopped burning and disappeared in a wisp of smoke and left us staring at the sky, gazing at some gazing stars, feeling how cold the universe really is. Come back, Emily. Shoot some light out of the heavens again, and maybe uh, maybe as we're gazing, the gazing stars gazing back at us, we're gazing at them, maybe a shooting star goes racing through the sky, and that's Emily on the move. Because she's not a mere lightning bolt anymore, she's galactic now, moving through the night as powerful as a star, loving her life, living, being her best self thinking that Jack and his friends will probably be just fine. They'll figure out how to rub sticks together soon enough. And if not, well, cold oatmeal isn't the worst thing. Just wait and eat it at noon. The sun has set, but it's going to come up when it's here in the... It's in the process of disappearing. Just like every baby is already on the road to dying, but when it's not here, it's not disappearing anymore. It's in the process of renewal. Just like when our theme song ends, it's not headed toward the ending. Not anymore. That's over. And when I'm not here talking anymore, I'm just getting ready to talk again. Maybe Christina Rossetti 
this time, God bless her. Maybe someone else, who knows? Apparently, it's not up to me to plan these things necessarily, and of course, I'm never really gone because I'm trapped in those damn archives, my prison. 400 times and counting where I voluntarily locked myself in one of those cells. What am I thinking? All for you, dear listeners, if you even care. I'm not always sure. Maybe you hate listen or ignore. A lot of people do listen, but there aren't 117 billion people who have. But I will try to be positive and say the 5 million who have listened are nevertheless a worthy start. Somewhere in all this doom and gloom is some happiness. And somewhere in all the oblivion is a bit of eternity, too. And one last piece of good news. That kindly stopping by death. We thought it was a little gentle joke from Emily, from our speaker at the beginning. Well, it's different now that we've heard the end, isn't it? If it's from a speaker who's been dead from, for centuries... If it's someone who's alive, who's afraid of death, the kindly is ironic, a joke, lighthearted. Oh, you think you'll escape? You think you're not going to stop for me? Well, think again. Think you're too busy to stop for death? Aha. Death will find the time, even if you won't. But if the speaker is someone who's been traveling through the centuries, like a star shooting through the sky, it's different, isn't it? I was too busy to properly consider death or even to let myself die. But death was kinder. Death kindly stopped for me, released me. Death let me be who or what I'm ultimately meant to be. Okay. Is that good news or bad? I got shivers. But they're the good kind of shivers. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.